Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Nadeem Ahmad. Now, Nadeem is the Managing Director of Northern Gas Heating Limited, which is a Wolverhampton-based firm, a leading installer of central heating systems to the private market. Uh, Nadeem, welcome. Great to have you on the programme with us today. Good to be on, uh, on here, Scott. Yeah, it's fantastic uh, to have you, as I say. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about the topic of leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, well, it's about direction. It's about uh, um, staff and motivation. Um, it's about planning. I suppose it's everything um, involved in having successful business. So um, I would say the most important thing really is direction. A good leader is one that can direct, that one that can motivate, one that can tally, uh, rally the troops around um, when times are hard and also uh, when it's good as well to make sure we keep going. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's interesting there that you mentioned that um, idea of rallying the troops and keeping everybody almost positive, as it were, because that's really important, especially now, isn't it, in this time of crisis with the COVID-19 fallout. Having sort of a positive environment to kind of get the best out of individuals is really important, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's not easy where literally in in the times that we're facing right now, um, offices are being closed to protect staff. and people working from home um, need to be trusted to make sure that they still have the interest of the business at heart uh, and work diligently and um, and well. Uh, because hopefully when all this blows over, we still want to have a business up and running and to come back to uh, be in four weeks' time or eight weeks' time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think all this happens when um, you have a good nucleus of, of staff, managers, Etc. Um, and that all pulling the in the right direction um, with interest at heart. Yeah, and um, obviously keeping in mind that it's such a challenging time for business leaders, not just in the UK but all over the world, given that impact. Uh, from your own experience, Nadine, would you have any advice to give to through other to other business leaders who are trying to direct their businesses through this uh, time of hardship? Well, I mean, if we if I look at what we did as a business when we realised the, the severity of COVID-19 and on what was taking place. I think it was probably about three weeks ago we, we held a board meeting um, to to one what we need to do to protect the office staff. We've got an office of 40 plus people. How can we what actions do we need to put in place? What protocols, signs, washing hands, etc. So we did the basics and we made the staff feel very comfortable. We managed to purchase gloves and masks uh, hand sanitization, uh, hand sanitizers, everything. And then it's also protecting because we're a heating company, we've got engineers and surveyors on the road. We have to then protect our customers. Uh, we have to protect these, these guys as well. So we, we sent out strong positive messages internally and externally to say, look, we're here for you. We're one big family united. You know, we have what 80, 85 staff members in total. Um, and it's, it's, serious what we're facing but we need to face it together um, and we try to keep it as positive uh, a dire situation as positive as as, as we could um, protecting our staff externally was seen extremely well 
was warmly welcomed um, by the external staff because they were going at customers being well protected with PPE, uh, overalls, masks, given directions how to dispose of them. Uh, customers were told to, you know, stay away, so so to speak, from our guys. So they were very comfortable. The customers were very happy as well. But, but the main thing I would say to, to the businesses uh, in, in response to your question, you know, going, going around houses, is it, it's keeping the staff informed of everything that is taking place in a positive way. Uh, and they'll be there to help and to rally and do what needs to be done. Absolutely. And even outside of times of crisis, when we talk about that aura of positivity, that positive culture, it's important, isn't it, in any context? I mean, even in the everyday when things are going well, just to get the best out of everybody around you, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, positiveness, no business can function uh, without staff and good staff. Uh, And it's it's important that they feel part of the business, you know, hence why it's called a business. So it's all round circle, 360 degree. Um, everyone has their jobs to do, maybe it's a, you know, from a cleaner to administrator, to security, to senior manager, to a director. Um, they're, all, they're all links in the chain and they're all vitally important. Exactly. And do you think it's the job of the person at the top as well to make sure that those around them are leading even in their roles as well? Absolutely. Ownership is very important in the day and age that we are, uh, that we live in. Uh, trust, trust and ownership is important. Um, so people owning the jobs that they're doing. Uh, but also, I suppose, that they also need to be managed and directed. Maybe directed more so than managed. Um, possibly, actually, actually, management and direction probably go hand in hand. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it, I, I think it's, it becomes very important to... Um, to get the best out of staff, that they can see their managers doing what needs to be done. They're not scared. You know, even myself, uh, even with the staff that we have, uh, I still like to, uh, in a way, get my hands dirty, be on the phone, speak to customers, deal with issues, deal with installers, order materials, etc. It's always good to be involved in that business. You understand what people are doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's that journey that a leader goes on to get into that position, which is also really important. Um, drawing on your own experience, because you had, um, of course, experience in leadership positions before launching Northern Gas as your own business, uh, Nadim. Um, did you always imagine that you'd end up in a leadership position early in your career? Um, I think when I started working at the age of, well, it's quite late. <laughs> so 23, 24, 23 years of age, I started working. Um, and I, so I finished my studies, took a bit of time out, and I thought it's probably time to maybe get some kind of summer job. So I fell into a job in all fairness. Um, and I, I used to listen, I used to learn, uh, see see things around me. Um, and I think within three, four months of starting, I got promoted. Uh, and then from there, I thought, am I one that, um, you know, I, I found listening and being managed quite easy in all fairness. Um, and I was to just take part from what I was to hear. Um, even get involved with managers that had nothing to do with myself, just to, to learn their the ways of how they manage people. And, and as, you, as you appreciate, management in 93 was totally different to what it is in this day and age. Uh, but I think from there, I sort of became, took the best bits and got rid of the worst bits. And 
within six months and seven months, I started getting promoted in different positions. And I think by the time I was 26, 27, I became a sales director. So everything happened for me very, very quick. Uh, and I think it's just simply my enthusiasm and the passion uh, for, for the work I was doing and the fact that I wanted to progress. Um, it could have been for, for money because progression leads to money. So the, the, the both go really hand in hand. Um, you know, you always want to excel, you want to progress. And every time you exceed, you excel and you progress, um, then the salaries also follow, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned some of those qualities there, enthusiasm, for example, that great leaders do have to essentially have to succeed. Um, do you think that those sorts of qualities are things that certain people are born with or can somebody really learn how to be a good leader as they develop through their career as well? I, I think people can develop. Um, I suppose it all depends as to how much they want to develop. So um, I don't think anyone's born as a good leader. It's it's the the hunger that they have inside themselves. Um, nothing comes to anyone unless I suppose we do the lottery on a, a Saturday or Wednesday, or whenever it is. But it's always hard work and dedication. You know, even if you speak to the 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 elite of the elite sports or any any field, they all say it's all about um, the dedication, the commitment that you have. And I suppose that. Same applies to business, whether you're a manager or, or whatever you are, or, or, or a director. It's all about what you put in, what you'll get, uh, get out of it. Um, so, dedication, commitment, it's time, it's time consuming, um, but you then reap the rewards um, after a while. Absolutely. So you can learn, but some things there are just aren't a substitute for like that hard work and that dedication. Absolutely right. Um, Nadine, before yeah. we do um, wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for yourself for Northern Gas and also what you hope to achieve in that time, as well as, of course, steering through these uh, troubled waters with the outbreak? Well, as a business, uh, we, we expected this year to be probably one of our best years in 20 years of being in business. Um, so we had a lot of projects, a lot of uh, new innovations started, and uh, we hoped that this year, this year would be an amazing year. We would uh, you know, probably have another 25, 30 staff members joining us and, and a great year for the business. Unfortunately, with, with what's happened in the last three weeks, four weeks, um, we probably need to just redress and replan uh, and strategize to see the way forward. Um, we're not sure how long this will last, whether it's four weeks or eight weeks or, or three months. The fact that, you know, schools are closed shows it's probably a long-term thing. Um, but the most important thing, as I said earlier, is that we want to make sure that we have a business and our staff have a business to go to when all this is complete. Our job is all about installations or service work. Um, so, you know, at, if we can't install boilers or we can't service or, or fit renewable technology, then that, that is going to have some kind of impact on us as a business. On a positive side, you know, if this, uh, you know, four weeks or six weeks or seven weeks, is everything comes back to normality, then I'm hoping we can pick off from where we left off. Um, and even though we won't meet the the forecast that we thought about for this year, even if we hit, 65% it will be a very good year for us and it just means that we look forward to uh, to next year Yeah absolutely and let's hope we start seeing that upward trajectory coming sooner rather than later as well yeah, um, Absolutely 
Nadim, it's been an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on the uh, the program today. And I think it would also be fantastic to have you back on in a few months' time to see all of this retrospectively and gauge how things have panned out. So again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the program and joining all of us today. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. We now hand Thank over you. to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets 
a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you right. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that that just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that 
you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So. You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them, mm. and if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because 
they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was always brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but hmm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of, players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I actually yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely um, now you in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight, rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration. Um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.